Thank you, and good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. Now, this first program inaugurates a series of programs teaching the great theological subjects of the Word of God. Throughout these broadcasts in the next year, we will have 52 30-minute sessions on the doctrine of God. We'll have six sessions on the Bible, five lessons on what the Bible says about man and creation, eight on angelology and demonology, 14 lessons on soteriology, and we shall cover all the major doctrines of the Bible in the subsequent broadcasts. Now, in our first series of broadcasts, which will run nearly 52 broadcasts, we will have 12 lessons on the doctrine of God the Father, 34 lessons on God the Son, and 16 lessons on God the Holy Spirit. As we've made clear from our preceding announcements, this broadcast is a theological broadcast, which aims to present in a teachable form to the student and the teacher of the Word of God the main doctrines of the Bible, that is, what the Bible teaches. Not merely what it is presumed to teach, but what it actually says about the following subjects. As you know, the main purpose and the inspiration of preservation of Scripture was to teach doctrine. And, of course, you and I have lived to see the day and age in the 20th century when the Scriptures have been reduced to a textbook for emotional fanatics, and a textbook for monument builders and Christian celebrities, and a textbook for every type of practical uh, haberdashery and magpie nest the human mind could construct. The Bible primarily is a textbook teaching truth about truth. And in the Bible we read all scriptures given the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. We read also in our Bibles in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that in the last days the Christians will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lust will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and shall turn away from the truth and be turned into fables. So it's of the utmost importance that we have some type of presentation of sound doctrine in these last days preceding the second coming of Christ when all the major groups are pulling away from doctrine as fast as they can get and being turned into fables. Now we are not saying these groups do not quote scripture. After all, the devil quoted scripture to Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4. What we are saying is there's a great gap between what people think the Bible teaches or what some people make it teach and what it actually says about the subjects under discussion. In our first lesson this morning, we're going to be taking up the doctrine of God. This is called theology proper, God knowledge, although theology includes the study of homotheology, the study of sin, the study of soteriology, the study of salvation, Christology, the study of Christ, uh, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, the study of the church, and many other related studies. But our first series of broadcasts will deal with the doctrine of God. After all, that will be the proper place to begin, and particularly with the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. Now, we trust these broadcasts will be a blessing to you and be edificatory to you if you're a teacher or preacher of the Word of God. These broadcasts, of course, may be some interest to a Christian layman, but they're aimed primarily at the Christian who has been entrusted with teaching the Word of God or preaching the Word of God. Hence, these broadcasts are aimed primarily at students and teachers of the Word of God and deal with theological subjects. Our first <coughs> doctrine, of course, which we'll study will be the doctrine of God the Father, theology proper, the doctrine of God, and from the Bible Revelation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, it might help you to take paper and pencil or pen and paper and make notes as we go on these studies from week to week and write down the references. We'll cover about 40 verses of references on each uh, 
uh, broadcast, and it may not be time for you to assimilate all the matters on the few minutes we're on the air, about 28 minutes. You may have time during the week to run down these references and study them at your leisure and learn something about the theological structure of the Word of God. Now, to begin our study in Bible doctrine, we ought to begin with God. After all, that's where the book begins. The problem for the Bible believer is solved with the very first verse of the Bible, which says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This quotation from the King James Bible was quoted on the moon recently, Genesis 1-1, and the beginning verse assumes the existence of God. The Lord Jesus Christ never questioned the existence of God. He refers to God in a matter-of-fact way. As a matter of fact, the, uh, there isn't one writer in the Bible who wastes time trying to prove the existence of God. The term God alone occurs in the Bible over 500 times. And the Bible takes the existence of God for granted. Now, we will talk on these broadcasts about the theological argument for the existence of God, the cosmological argument, the anthropological argument, and the argument from congruity. These are theological subjects. But to begin with, let us notice the Bible takes the existence of God for granted. It is never brought up as a question. Now, we are constantly challenged by atheists, skeptics, agnostic, and hecklers to prove there is a God. Fortunately, we don't have to prove it. The Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Any man may argue about the existence of God with his head, but the trouble is heart trouble. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. It is very difficult for the natural man to believe in something that he cannot see, touch, or feel. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we are told the natural man receiveth not the thing of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. However, anyone with any intelligence can acknowledge the evident fact of a living God. Christ says in John 7, 17, If any man will do his will, God's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether Christ said he spoke of himself or whether he spoke of the Father. That is, the skeptic's trouble is heart trouble. It has to do with a bad life and an immoral attitude. Now, it's true you have moral atheists and moral skeptics and moral sinners who do good because they found it pays to do good. Or they do good because they can't do evil and get away with it. Or they do good to sue their conscience. Or they do good to brag about their self-righteousness before their fellow man. We do have moral sinners, moral atheists, and moral skeptics. No difference between them and the immoral sinner is the difference between a brand-new garbage can and an old one. They both have the same content. They have a joke about the prayer, dial-a-prayer service for atheists. The atheists have a dial-a-prayer service where you dial a number and nobody answers. They also one, uh, have a one about an atheist who was lying in the coffin. One of his buddies came by and looked at him and said, Poor old Bill, there he is all dressed up and nowhere to go. Uh, being an atheist takes a great deal of faith. As a matter of fact, it takes a great deal more faith to be an atheist than a deist or a theist, a believer in God. To be an atheist, a person has to deny a first cause. And to deny this, you just about have to deny your rational powers. Anybody who knows about the laws of thermodynamics, and in particular the second law, the law of entropy, knows that if the universe had been here more than four billion years, it would have run down and wasted out and burned out by now. How much more if it had been here forever without a first cause? If the universe had been here for, say, more than 100 billion years, it would have burnt out at least 50 billion years ago by the law of breakdown. 
The magnetic field around the Earth is decreasing in such a rate it couldn't have been here more than 10,000 years at a maximum, and so forth and so on. To be an atheist takes a great deal of faith. Now, we realize in these broadcasts that in a country where freedom of religion is allowed, a man can be called religious who is an atheist, and he has a freedom to express his views, which is perfectly all right with us. We could care less. If a man wants to exhibit his ignorance, that's his business. If you want to display your stupidity, you're free to do it. However, you're not free to demand a respectful hearing from those of us who have some sense. In plain words, in America, we need to distinguish between liberty and license. Now, we're granted a man has the liberty to be a an atheist if he wants to be. If you want to go to hell, that's your business. And if you don't want to send a film with your business, turn off the radio. That's your liberty. You can turn the knob to the right or to the left. That's your business. But don't expect those of us who have some sense to listen to the claptrap put out by Rousseau and Voltaire and Celsus and Porphyry and Tom Paine and Bob Ingersoll. We have better sense. The Bible begins with God. And although the Bible is not a textbook that attempts to prove the existence of God, the Bible opens with a positive fact that God does exist. Then the first proof of the existence of God is what we call the scriptural proof. There are other proofs which we shall discuss, the proof from nature, the proof from conscience, the argument from cause, the argument from design, and the moral argument. But the first main proof is the fact that Christ said, Thy word is truth, and David said, Thy word is true, and every one of our judgments endures forever. And David said, Thy word is true from the beginning. And the beginning takes God for granted. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So to begin at the beginning, the Bible begins with God and takes his existence as being a fact. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. He didn't say that in his head. I'm any man with any sense and any uh, halfway, a man who's half intelligent or half rational uh, can see immediately that there is a God. The man who said there's no God simply says that down in his heart because of a bad life. Now, it's true he may have cleaned up temporarily, but he may have plans later, or he may be trying to cover up a skeleton in the closet from 30 years back. There's more that meets the eye, you know, than just college education, the science, religion, all that foolishness. All right, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Anyone with any intelligence would acknowledge the evident fact of a living God, and the greatest proof apart from Scripture of the existence of God is a daily fellowship that a born-again person can have with God in prayer. Those of us who know God can sing, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. We know there is a God because we talk to him daily. He hears our prayers and answers the prayer of the heart, and our heart, and we know the Bible says we are to commit everything to him in prayer. Why would anybody be dumb enough to tell you to ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, when there's nobody there to answer, nobody to give, and nobody to open the door? Rather stupid, don't you think? Could it be that the four billion saved people that have been saved since the time of Pentecost have all been deceived? Have they? When they can write down lists of hundreds of prayers that have been answered, comfort in sorrow, comfort in tribulation, Money sent in when they needed it. Jobs obtained when they needed them. People in their family healed who were sick. Peace of mind and peace of heart in the face of certain death and torture and pain. They're all deceived, are they? It's a delusion, is it? Well, if it's a delusion, then you better get submerged in it about 150 fathoms deep because it's a permanent illusion. I, for example, have been saved for 27 years. I lived on this earth 27 years, an unsaved man. 
I was raised as an Episcopalian. My father was a vestryman. We were all catechized and Christian, had godfathers and godmothers, and took confirmation. In my life as a young man, I practiced TM and meditation, wound up studying Zen Buddhism, and attained prajna, a state of samadhi in Zen Buddhism in Tokyo, Japan, back during World War II, before these fellows knew what a guru was over here. Later on, I took Catholic convert courses from a Roman Catholic priest, a graduate from Loyola, a Jesuit priest, and then I found Christ my Savior in the record room of a radio station where a country preacher led me to the Lord. Don't tell me there isn't any God. I sought him and found him. He was heard of me and answered my prayers, delivered me from all my sins, and saved my soul, and commanded me to commit all I had to him with prayer, to him in prayer, with thanksgiving, and make known him all my requests with supplication. Why, to play a joke on me? Well, it's some joke, isn't it? Like a converted drunk said to an atheist, he said, if it's a delusion, it's a funny delusion. He said, it turned my whiskey bottles into food and clothing for my family and my bad temper into a charitable disposition toward my fellow man and got me to stop by a church on Wednesday night instead of a bar. It's some delusion, isn't it? So we talk about these things, no matter apologetics, we're talking about something that's real. If you were in a dark room and held out your hand in that dark room three times a day, and somebody put something in your hand that you needed three times a day, wouldn't you guess after a while there was somebody there in the room with you? I mean, you talk about rational powers and being dishonest rationally and intellectually. What do you call that? You people are atheists and bow your head at the table before you eat. Who do you thank for the food? The government? They control the farmland to the federal banks. You thank the great white father at Washington and the White House? I never heard of such discrimination. Who do you thank? Yourself? Isn't that rather stupid? The worm is going to get you. Imagine a man giving himself credit for what he has, and the worms wind up with him. Don't you find that rather ludicrous? The Bible takes the existence of God for granted. The first proof is scriptural. The Bible speaks of God over 500 times by the name of God, and the word Lord over 300 times. The next proof we have for the existence of God is from nature. We find this great passage in Psalm 19.1 where we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. No man could gaze at the universe and think that it came together accidentally unless he had set himself up as his own God and looked at everything relative, like, relatively like Einstein did and set up his own moral standards in order to avoid the moral standards of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1.20 goes even further and says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. The man who accepts Scripture will really acknowledge the existence of God. He'll have proof of the existence of God, and there won't be any doubt about it. The invisible things are clearly seen. When Christ wanted to tell a man what hell was like, he pointed to a city dump, Gehenna. When he wanted to show people what a heaven was like, he pointed to a sinless, clean city with a park in it. When the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to picture himself, he pictured himself in the Bible as the S-U-N, the sun, 
which moves east to west, as history moves east to west, as revivals move east to west, as the Holy Ghost moves east to west, against the rotation of the world. The invisible things are clearly seen. A perfect picture, for example, the Godhead and the Trinity is found in the sun, which contains alpha, beta, and gamma rays. The sun has light rays that you see and cannot feel, a picture of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, rays that you can feel but cannot see, a picture of God the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, and rays which you can neither see nor feel, actinic rays, which picture the soul of God, God the Father. The sun, then, visibly seen, is a representation of the things that are not seen. So the things that are not seen are eternal, but they are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Romans 1.20 All right, the next proof for God comes from conscience. Man is born with the universal belief in a supreme being. No tribe has yet discovered that lacks this. They know that some being creates and controls life. The only kind of people that doubt belief in a supreme being are people who have been educated out of it and taught relative matters so they can live like the devil and justify themselves. There is one tribe, isolated or unlicensed, in the face, isolated or unisolated, in the face of this earth, that doesn't believe in a supreme being. If a man was raised on an island with the animals, he would grow up worshiping a supreme being. You have to be educated out of it. There is no such thing as an uneducated, natural atheist. Romans 2.15 says about the heathen people, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The existence of God is written in the human conscience, and whether a man has a Bible or not, or the law or not, his conscience bears witness to the Ten Commandments. People say, what, what about those that don't know and haven't heard? They know a great deal more than you think they know. There's many a Fiji Islander or a Tasmanian Islander. There's many heathen out in the New Hebrides or New Guinea, Guiana. There's many an African in the Chad or the heart of the Belgian Congo that knows a great deal more about God than the professors at the University of Oregon or the University of California or the University of Michigan, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, Tennessee, or New York. You say, where do you get that from? From having common sense. Where would you get it otherwise? Out there in the jungle, the heathen cut off a man's ham when he steals the first time, his other ham when he steals the second time, and his head the third time. Why? Because they know the commandment that says, Thou shalt not steal, even if they don't have a Bible. There isn't any tribe on the face of this earth where adultery isn't recognized as a crime except in the college circles and high school circles in America that talk about adult consent and premarital sex. You're not born with a disbelief in morals and the existence of God. You're born with a revelation of God in your conscience, which you have to drown out. And the Bible says about these people in 1 Timothy chapter 4, they have their conscience seared with a hot iron. Acts 17.23, Paul says, As I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now that was in the city of Athens that contained the most educated, cultured people of their day, the people who wrote the, grammar, the grammarian textbooks for the correcting of the King James text by the modern Christian schools. They were agnostic, but conscience told them that there was a God, though they did not know him personally.
They were agnostic. That's what the word unknown is. Gnosis with the alpha before it. Agnostic. Agnostic. An unknower. Or as they say in Latin, an ignoramus. So the heathen know about God. He's revealed in nature. And he's revealed in conscience even though they have no scriptures. Some atheists may claim their conscience not tell them about God. That's because they burn their conscience out. Now you stop and think about the first time you took a cigarette or the first time you took a glass of liquor. I'm not talking about the third time, old son. I'm talking about the first time. Don't you get smart with me. I lived out there in that world for 27 years, an unsaved man as a dance band drummer, as a bartender, as a radio announcer, as a D.I. in infantry and hand-to-hand, as a sign painter and a cartoonist. Go tell your grandmother. Don't tell me the first time you tried a Cuba Lieber or a Rum Collins or a Tom Collins or a Slow Gin Piers or a Sidecar or a Boxcar or a Manhattan or a Barcardi or a Bloody Mary. Don't you tell me the first time you took one you took it with a clear conscience. The first time... It is doubtful if a genuine atheist can be found, for at best they are men who have still conscience by blatant unbelief, and by long continued practice living in sin, they have burned their conscience out so they no longer warn them. Some men are so blind they may deny the existence of the sun in the sky, but that does not alter the fact that the sun exists and it rises and sets each day. None are so blind as people who refuse to see, and the honest man will find that the inner still small voice says that God exists, and is alive. Men deny the existence of God not because they can't find him, but because they are afraid to face the responsibility of being accountable to him after death. There is an atheist in the world who didn't run to that belief in order to get out of personal accountability to God. And that's why when Paul preached to the most educated, cultured people of his day, the Athenian Greek scholars and the Athenian Greek philosophers, Acts chapter 17, they mocked when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. No atheist could stand to have his life brought out in the open, and that's why men are atheists. And that's why the fool says in his heart, not in his head. Atheism is one of the devil's tools to put men to sleep without accepting salvation. If there is no God, then I'm not responsible to anyone. I can live and die as I please. And if you don't accept that God, you get you another one. Which means, really, when a man says an atheist, he's just a liar. What he means is he doesn't want the God of the Bible. But men are incurably religious, and every atheist has some God. You say, Brother Ruckman, I'm an atheist, and I worship no God at all. Sure you do, son. You worship your brains. If you don't accept one God, you put something else in the supreme authority. You have to have a supreme authority, or you have anarchy in your life. You have a disorganized life that is a madhouse. Of course you have a supreme authority. Your God's either the God and Father of Jesus Christ, or Ramakrishna, or Muhammad, or Buddha, or Leo Tse, or the first cause, or the first principle, or the great architect, or a Mahabod, or something else you cooked up, or it's your own noodle, son. To look up and see a plane and not see a pilot, and say the plane is pilotless, is ridiculous looking to the heavens saying there is no God simply because we can't see him. You can't see the pilot flying a DC-7 or DC-9 over your head. What does that mean? Few of us have ever seen our brains, yet we believe we have them. man said to Billy Sunday one time, he said, I don't see God, I don't believe in something I can't see. And Billy said, you ever see your backbone? 
The fellow said, sure, I saw a reflection in a mirror. And Billy said, well, I see a reflection of Christ dying for my sins in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the man said, yeah, but I felt it with my hand. And Billy Sunday said, I can feel the Holy Spirit warming my heart and giving me confidence in God. You have as much evidence that you have a backbone and a brain as you do that God exists. You have as much ex uh, proof that God exists and that Christ died a Savior. As you do, you have a brain in your head. All right, another argument for the existence of God is what we call the argument from cause, cosmological. That is, the world is here. The first theological argument for God is cosmological. It means the world must have come from somewhere. Somebody or something must have caused it to come into being at one time or another. For example, here's a book. Well, somebody must have written it. No printing press can of itself produce a book, be it ever so modern a press for the latest gadgets. Somebody built a building. Somebody created the tree. Somebody operates the universe. If all the piece of a watch were placed in a can, the can is shaken gently for 150 billion years, the watch would not accidentally get together and start running. The only sensible answer to a man who's intellectually honest to the problem of the existence of the world is the existence of an intelligent being behind the order, the cosmos. The chances that man could come into being by Darwin's theory, or any modern evolutionist theory, are the chances he would take if a print factory blew up in the air and came down forming a dictionary. I may say this, of course, with charity to all our evolutionists who are entitled to believe what they want to believe. Freedom of speech, son, help yourself. But don't expect an intelligent man to buy it who can think. I mean, after all, after all education is not brains, and education is not intellectual honesty. Education is education. One of the greatest money-making rackets in America, I guess, outside of sex and automobiles. Then we have the argument for the existence of God from design. This is called the theological argument. In a teleological argument, we presume that a watch not only exists, but it has a designer. It was planned for a specific purpose. A watch was not designed, for example, for mosquitoes to live in, for fish to swim in. It was designed by a keen mind for the purpose of accurately telling the time. An examination of the world and the things large and small showed that each is designed by an intelligent mind for a specific purpose in life. The colors of the bird and the means of defense of animals are not accidents. They are the result of the plan of a superior planning mind of an originator, whom we call God. This concludes our first series of studies in our theological seminar of the air, and we are discussing in this first series of broadcasts the basic theological argument on the existence of God. We have given the argument from Scripture, the argument from nature, the argument from conscience, and the cosmological and teleological argument. On our next broadcast, we will take up the anthropological argument, the argument from life, and the argument from congruity that proves the existence of God. We hope you'll join us in the broadcast again when we next we meet to discuss further our first theological subject, the existence of God. In subsequent broadcasts, we've said before, we will be discussing soteriology, homotiology, ecclesiology, uh, angelology, uh, demonology, and other theological subjects. We hope that you'll have time to be with us on each broadcast from week to week, and that you'll take some notes and be able to get something from the broadcast that might be helpful to you in a better understanding of the great doctrines of the Word of God. Until the same time next week, then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.